Hey guys, welcome to Life Beyond the Screen, a podcast by Tori and Lucy. We're currently roommates at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And basically, the reason why we started this podcast is because we want to talk about our love for movies and the things we notice and share it with you guys. Because during quarantine and still now, we have found ourselves watching so many different movies, especially thriller and horror, I would say. And we've noticed so many different elements of the films that is just so necessary to be talked about. So I guess we just wanted to start this podcast to um, let you guys know what's in our brains. Something we actually did during quarantine when we were at our hometowns was that we would pick a movie, spend about two hours trying to decide on a movie we both wanted to watch and then we would text during it so it was like we were together. Tori and I are obsessed with analyzing every single scene from a movie. Literally every scene and I think that an important thing you guys should know about us is that we're more of like the artistic type of people. Um, Lucy's a comm major, I'm a journalism major so we're both taking like film classes and stuff like that so we actually look for these things in films to talk about because we find it super interesting. So for our concept of this podcast, we definitely wanted to talk about films in general. And for this first episode, we decided to focus on one concept in horror movies, child actors. Tori and I were talking one day and we thought that it's pretty crazy for children to be thrown into horror movies. Do they know what they're taking part in? Do they see the gruesome scenes, and do they get to watch the aftermath? More importantly, is their mental health compromised by what they may have seen or been through? And I think it's another thing to note that child actors in general are super interesting to learn about because what is their future like now? Are they still famous? Did they fall off the face of the earth? What are they doing now? But we decided to focus it specifically on horror movies today um, just because we know that it probably has some sort of mental health effect on them or or not. But we think that the fact that a child is thrown into a horror movie is so much more interesting than just a child thrown into a comedy because that's obvious, like, more common. But when there's children in horror movies, you can't help but imagine what that does to them if they see those scenes like Lucy said. Exactly. I'm sure you guys have all heard of The Shining and The Exorcist. These are very famous, iconic horror movies. And the thing that they both have in common is that they used a child actor. I'm sure many of you have heard of Linda Blair. She was the leading child actress in The Exorcist. She was only 14 when it hit the theaters. The movie put Blair at the center of a stressful situation that would continue to plague her throughout the remainder of her career. The role was physically demanding to the point that Blair was put in uncomfortable and dangerous situations. There's this one infamous situation where Blair was strapped into a harness during the exorcism scene. In these sequences, she would be violently thrashing and jerking about, and all the while the harness would repeatedly hit her on the spine. The thing is, when we watch these kinds of films, we think, oh, this is acting. This is a child actor. She's fine. She's not in any danger but there's a lot more gruesome things going on behind the scenes. Perfect, yeah. So basically, another article I found online 
was on goodhousekeeping.com and it's basically just a before and after comparison or then and now comparison to all of different child actors from horror movies and one i wanted to specifically point out other than the one lucy just talked about which is also in here was sissy spacek in the movie carrie and she was playing a high schooler in the movie although she was older but um now she's obviously way older but she's still alive and she um actually is now like in a successful film career she has been in other movies she's won academy awards but her portrayal as carrie in this movie um earned her oscar nominations and there's really not too much information on the aftermath of it but based on this article specifically it really does just seem like her performance brought her nothing but good fortune for the future so not always are you going to find child actors that have struggled but that is something that definitely happens like lucy was talking about i think it's important to also speak about the parents and the parents decision to put these kids in these kinds of movies you know jodell from the the film silent hill was quoted saying her mom never worried about her participation in the movie quote We both knew what we were getting into. I grew up on a movie set, and she knew it wouldn't really affect me. It's interesting to hear a quote like this because Jodell was only 11 at the time. 11 when she was thrown into a life of horror films and movie sets. Her mom should be held viable for her mental health because she's the one that put her in that position. She's As a young child, you don't really have much say in what your parents tell you to do because you assume everything they're telling you to do is for your best interest. And maybe it was, and maybe they just didn't think, oh, this is going to affect them in the future when they see these awful scenes when they're part of this dark, dark movie. But in reality, that do- that is going to affect them. It's inevitable that it's going to affect them. And, yeah. I think going along the discussion of parents... It's interesting to see it from a director's point of view. Everybody knows The Shining and this famed director, Stanley Kubrick. But not a lot of people talk about, you know, him using a child in his famous movie. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to focus on. Yeah, so we found this article online that actually told us something we didn't know before. That um, the child actor... Danny Lloyd playing Danny in The Shining had no idea that they were filming a horror movie, which is something I was honestly super shocked to read. Me too. Because, I don't know, I would just assume if he's recording or filming a movie, like, obviously you know what you're getting yourself into, but he was such a little boy that his parents wanted to protect him. So basically what they did is tell him that they're recording some sort of boring ad and they what they did is after the movie was done being made they clipped out all the horror scenes which is a lot of scenes if you've ever seen the shining and they made this boring quick film of danny walking down a boring hallway and all of the scenes he's in and he just thought he was shooting some boring commercial or something but in reality he is so famous for this incredibly famous horror film by Stanley Kubrick 
And that's where we kind of realized that in this case, the parents of Danny Lloyd were looking out for him. But at the same time, he wasn't accredited for being so famous until he got older. Exactly. We had the chance to interview a professor named Jeremy, who actually was able to give us a lot of insight onto his knowledge behind Stanley Kubrick and The Shining because he just recently wrote a book um, about Stanley Kubrick himself. As We had the chance to interview him, ask him questions about the idea of the child in horror films and get his insight on it. Right, and Jeremy was such a huge help to me and Tori because normally when we watch a movie, especially the horror movies that we're obsessed with, we talk about the scenes, the metaphors, the meanings, but rarely do we ever look about life beyond the screen, what the directors did, what, what it was like to actually act in a movie like that. And for The Shining, I think it's essential to the plot of the movie to talk about Danny Lloyd. So Jeremy was really helped us out with some of the questions we had. The first question that we had for Jeremy was about the book he's written. He wrote a book highlighting the life and the ideas behind director Stanley Kubrick. Although we hadn't gotten to read Jeremy's book yet, we asked him if he would inform us and our listeners on what this book is mainly about. The first question that you ask me is about one of my books, which is uh, After Kubrick, A Filmmaker's Legacy. And that's a collection of essays that I've edited, and it's really very much, as its title says, it's about the legacy of Kubrick, that is to say how his uh, films have influenced other filmmakers, but also how the thought that he deploys have been, uh, the, has been uh, recuperated in uh, contemporary culture and other arts other than just cinema. And, you know, like the, the very famous, um, I would say, epigones of uh, Kubrick include people like Christopher Nolan, Jonathan Glazer, uh, Yorgos Lantimos, uh, Gaspar Noé, and many other ones. So the book was uh, trying to assess the trace of Kubrick 40 years on after The Shining and uh, 20 years after his death. Thank you, Jeremy, for giving us that insight on your book, and we hope that you guys listening um, take the time to research the book or even go out and buy it and read it. And so the second question we have for Jeremy is um, I'm asking him, actually, if he himself knew that the little boy in The Shining, um, played by Danny Lloyd, actually had no idea what he was filming. He didn't find out till later in his life, as I mentioned earlier. And I want to ask Jeremy what his thoughts are on this. Did you know? How do you react to finding this out if you didn't know? Second question. Did you know that the little boy in The Shining, played by Danny Lloyd, actually had no idea what he was filming? Well, yes. So, yes, of course. I mean, Danny Lloyd was very young when he was making The Shining, a little boy, and uh, he thought that this was some sort of, uh, um, you know, drama, that they were, that, that they were filming a, a drama, a family drama. And um, it's not hard to believe because uh, if you think about it, there's actually very little scenes in the film that involve... Um, the little Danny uh, that involve gore or uh, any such thing, and even those scenes could, you know, are edited. For instance, the scene where he sees the the Grady twins chopped up uh, in the hallway. Well, I mean, obviously that's an insert. So, so you know, whoever was in charge of directing him, which was of course Stanley Kubrick, but also Leon Vitali, who was uh, Stanley Kubrick's assistant, and whom you can see. 
uh, helping Danny get ready for his takes and uh, playing with Danny and making it all into a fun uh, experiment or game. Uh, well, they were definitely not instructing Danny as to what was going on in the film. They were just telling him how to react and how to act and how to emote in given scenes. So it's actually much better than Danny was not told uh, what the film was about. And if you see him in this uh, fascinating documentary put together by Kubrick's daughter Vivian called Making the Shining, which is widely available on, online, you can find it on YouTube in Hall, uh, you can see that Danny is having a grand old time. I mean, you know, he is being interviewed and, and he seems to be really having a, a very nice time on the set. No, not abused at all, unlike Shelley Duvall who plays Wendy and who had a, a terrible time during that film. Uh, she was abused uh, and she had to put herself in a state of heightened emotions, you know, the way she's screaming and crying in the film for the better part of a year because the filming took 13 months. And um, I think that it's better to not tell the naive actor because when you're dealing even with a very talented child, uh, you're dealing with a naive actor, that is to say somebody who is not aware of the fact that they are, I mean, they are aware that they're uh, role-playing, they're aware that there's a game going on, but they're not exactly aware of how film works. And so uh, I think it's much better if you want to elicit spontaneous, candid uh, reactions from them to not always tell them what's going on. I don't think it's manipulative in a negative sense. It's manipulative in a productive sense. And since the you know, Danny Lloyd did not, I think, suffer any major setbacks in his life because of The Shining, then uh, I really don't see a problem with, uh, with uh, him having not been apprised on the set of, of the gruesome tale that he was being involved in as a fictional character. Thanks for your response, Jeremy. Going along those lines, another question that we had for you was, do you think that acting in horror movies could have a genuine impact on these children's lives as they grow up? If they are seeing the gruesome reality of what they f are filming or if they're not? So third question, do you think that acting in horror movies could have an impact on children's lives as they grow if they're seeing the gruesome reality of what they're filming? Uh, I don't think that Danny Lloyd saw the film as a little boy. I, I suppose his parents uh, sheltered him from uh, seeing the film until he was older. And uh, I think he's the best person to discuss the effects that uh, seeing the film has had on him. And he's actually been fairly outspoken in, of late. You know, now you see him in videos where he, um, he discusses this and he doesn't seem to be uh, particularly traumatized, but he was certainly, I'm sure, very surprised because the film that he thought he was making was a family drama and it ended up being something more uh, or different. And in general, uh, I think that uh, children involved in the shooting of horror films is one thing. I think that the, the the more lasting effect or more traumatic effect is for children to see horror movies at a very young age. Uh, I think that that's, that's more a part of the problem. Uh, I think that because of the access to TV networks and to media, uh, children can be exposed to horror films or to pornography or to uh, things that will definitely make a very, very shocking and lasting impression on their minds way too early. So, so um, I think that that is the, the actual problem, not, not to have uh, children, you know, making a film professionally surrounded by people who know what they're doing and who will uh, probably make sure that the child is not being uh, exposed to things that they shouldn't be exposed to or, or endangered for that matter. 
Thank you, Jeremy, for that insight. We actually definitely agree with you on the fact that um, children's lives can definitely be impacted when they're placed into these horror movies. And so next, we just wanted to ask you, um, we found a lot of information on this book called The Uncanny Child of Transnational Cinema. It really dives into what we're talking about today in this podcast. It's a book that discusses the topic of psychology of children in, in horror movies and we, going back to the previous question, want to follow through with that and ask you, in your own opinion, is it wrong to put children in these scenarios at such a young age as a parent? Uh, qu- question four. After some research, I found a lot of information on the uncanny child of transnational cinema. It seems to dive into what we're talking about today. Uh, yes, so that's a book by Jessica Balanzategui, who is a Australian scholar and uh, who I've had the pleasure of uh, exchanging with because she actually wrote a piece for um, a uh, dossier that I put together about The Shining uh, for an Australian website called Senses of Cinema. And yes, the, uh, the, the main topic of her research currently, or at least uh, you know, until she put the book out, is the uncanny child. And so what's this uncanny child business? Well, uh, there's a distinction to be made between the evil child and the uncanny child. And if we take the example of the evil child, well, we find, for instance, the evil children in Village of the Damned, a 1960s movie by Wolf Rilla, classic of uh, 1960s horror film, where the children are actually evil. They are, you know, they're, they're killing people and such. Uh, you have the omen, 1976 by Richard Donner, in which the child is no less than the Antichrist, Damien. And uh, we see him grow up through the uh, sequels of the film until he gets his uh, comeuppance against Jesus Christ in person. And then you have the uncanny child. The uncanny child, and of course the shining, uh, Danny in The Shining is a perfect example. There is something about the child that seems a little weird, but it's never, it's never a character who's evil. And you can think also more closer to us to uh, the remake of The Ring by Gore Verbinski, I think it was 2002, with the little boy who is clearly channeling a lot of Danny Lloyd in The Shining in his sort of quiet, um, you know, prescient uh, attitude. Uh, he knows something that other people don't know. He also shines in a sense. And he looks creepier than than Danny does, uh, because Danny is just plain adorable, and it's just that he, he knows or he sees things that uh, other people cannot see, but uh, the little boy in uh, in the ring was uh, definitely one of those children, as is, of course, Halle Joel Osment in um, The Sixth Sense, 1999 by M. Night Shyamalan. So those are uh, children that uh, Jessica Balanzategui writes about, and she discusses the uh, implications of this uh, uncanniness, and also in res- with respect to nostalgia. You know, when you have a film dealing with children uh, and therefore dealing with childhood in a sense, you're necessarily somehow grappling with nostalgia. And she distinguishes various kinds of nostalgia. Uh, there is the sort of restorative nostalgia, and then there is a more escapist nostalgia, and then there is uh, more conflicted uh, dimensions of nostalgia. And uh, she, uh, for the dossier that she uh, wrote for, uh, for, uh, for the article for the dossier that she wrote for me, uh, Jessica was discussing the conflicted nostalgia in the recent remake and sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep. Uh, which came out recently, in which we see Danny Lloyd as an adult, but also, I mean, not Danny Lloyd, Danny Torrance, 
Uh, we see Danny Torrance as an adult played by Ewan McGregor, but we also see a young actor who's, you know, looking a little bit like Danny Lloyd in the original film. And, uh, and, and, we, and we can definitely see why you would consider that conflicted nostalgia in a film such as that one. Also for the viewer himself, you know, who, who remembers The Shining and who has, who goes into watching Doctor Sleep with mixed emotions. And is it wrong, in my opinion, to put children in these scenarios at such a young age? Well, I mean, you know, if you start um, looking at things from that perspective, then most, uh, you know, most canon, most West, most of the Western canon is wrong, right? I mean, because uh, be it the Bible or Shakespeare or, uh, you know, uh, the uh, literature by Dostoevsky and... Uh, American realism, I mean, you name them, you will find, of course, British uh, realism, Charles Dickens and things like that, you'll find children put in harm's way because it sells hmm? and because it's powerful. So is it wrong to elicit powerful emotion and in order to do so include children in, in scenarios, in fiction? Uh, well, it can get exploitative for sure. It can definitely get exploitative. But, uh, you know, you think of The Shining, which is both as a horror film, uh, somehow exploitative uh, of violence, of sexism, of, uh, you know, uh, child abuse and, and racism and many other things. Uh, but at the same time, which is a work of art, you have, you have to find a balance between wrong and right. Uh, but I'd say that uh, to disqualify or to qualify a work of art based on ethical uh, circumstances, which are in general, uh, indisputable, such as, you know, it's wrong to harm children. Of course, it's wrong to harm people in general, and children in particular. Uh, is, it, uh, is it wrong to make a, a film that has a screenplay that involves violence against children? Uh, that's a delicate question, very, very sensitive question, very fraught question. I'd say that uh, it's certainly something that gives people pause, uh, and I think that if you know, we we don't really see, we don't really see a lot of films in which children are abused the way that adults are abused or defiled, and that's a good thing, I believe, and that's some sort of a taboo in in our culture. Uh, it's a taboo that is uh, all too often flaunted in venues that we don't have access to, or only some people have access to, like the dark web and things like that. Uh, but I'd say that in mainstream media, it's 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 not that often encountered. And um, in an original version of the script, Kubrick was thinking of having Jack kill Danny, uh, which would have been absolutely devastating. And, and we must thank uh, the screenwriter Diane Johnson, who co-wrote the script with Kubrick. She uh, you know, convinced him not to do that and to have Danny and Wendy survive. And uh, I think that was the right decision because to have Jack uh, kill uh, Wendy and Danny and for them to return as ghosts later on would have uh, delivered a very, very different film. I totally get what you're saying. From my opinion, it's hard to decide if it is wrong or if it's okay. You know, I can see it from the director's point of view. Without actors like Danny Lloyd and Linda Blair, these horror movies wouldn't have been the same. There's something about the presence of a child in a horror movie that makes it that much scarier for the audience. Another question that we have for Jeremy, 
What are your general thoughts about the uncanny child in horror cinema? And so fifth question, what are your general thoughts about the uncanny child in horror cinema? Well, uh, you know, like I, I think that we discussed that a little bit with uh, Jessica's book. I think it's a powerful trope. It can be exploited. The, um, the child is uncanny in the sense that, you know, like what is the uncanny, right? I mean, it's according to Sigmund Freud, Jung Heimlich, uh, you are confronted with something that seems habitual or homely or normal, uh, usual, familiar, and all of a sudden there is a slight shift. This uh, familiarity is shifted a little bit. So an example is, of course, dolls, dolls which look like children but are lifeless. Uh, and then, of course, there is a trope of the, the doll, doll that comes to life, which is doubly uncanny. And the child can be uncanny when they behave in a way that is unchildlike. That is to say, when the child starts to uh, you know, be very still and observe and look at people and uh, like an adult uh, or be uh, unusually quiet or uh, unusually sullen. And we've encountered a lot of those in horror cinema and it, it usually works. There's usually, when you see an uncanny child, you know it, and, and there's always that question, is this child troubled, traumatized? Uh, does this child have dissociative disorder and does it need help? Or is this child evil? So it, it, it asks a, a question from the viewer and it intrigues and puts the viewer on the edge of their seat. And, uh, and, and that trope is being exploited a lot to this day. Uh, there was a recent horror film called The Prodigy in which a, uh, a heinous, horrible sex crime uh, offender uh, reincarnates himself as a child and then he he goes on to murder the people who uh, you know contributed to him being incarcerated I mean he actually I think uh, he actually dies I think before the police can uh, intercept him and he's reincarnated as that child and so it's based on that trope and the problem of the film The Prodigy is that the little boy who's playing that uh, reincarnated uh, spirit of the serial killer in a, in a you know, six or seven year old uh, body uh, is just not acting very well. Uh, then you have the, uh, the I think the, um, the film is called The Doll. I think it's a Netflix original and it's about a woman who comes to a, a big mansion in Great Britain. She's running away from her own history of abuse, uh, you know, like stalk her boyfriend stalking her and things like that. And then she comes to this big family, I mean, a rich family of old people, and they say, you know, you're, we're, we're, we're entrusting you with our doll. You have to babysit the doll. And uh, I think she, at first she thinks it's like a bad joke, and then the doll actually seems to have a life of its own, and it's again using the trope of the uncanny. But with a, with a little spin here is that the, the, the child is a doll, right? I mean, later there's other things that are revealed, but the, the premise was definitely intriguing. So... Um, I think that it's a trope that works. The uncanny in general works very well in horror cinema, but it has to be handled well. The acting has to be good. Uh, the filmmaking has to be intelligent. Uh, you have to play with suggestion. You know, of course, it goes all the way back, at least to the turn of the screw by uh, Henry James. Uh, the idea of the child who, you know, what is going on with this child? Why is this child creepy? Uh, what kind of trauma is this child a repository of? I think that's far more interesting than having, uh, you know, a the devil uh, possessing the child. I mean, that sort of fantasy that children in their liveliness or in their sometimes rambunctious disposition are evil somehow. 
uh, or that they can get very, very excited or hyper when they've had too much sugar, for instance, on an afternoon and uh, in the park, and then uh, you feel like they are, they are your doom. Uh, that, I think, is more the subject of comedy. And uh, Netflix has an original called Le Little Evil, uh, which I thought was very cute. I mean, it, you know, it, as most of those Netflix originals, it, it lacks. It's lacking in certain respects. I mean, even if they're made for a fair amount of money, there is there's always something tacky about the cinematography and uh, the mise-en-scene. Um, but Little Evil was cute, and it really it sort of like turned those, those tropes inside out in a way that was uh, refreshing and, uh, and fun. So uh, that's just to say that The Uncanny Child has uh, potential for, for comedy as much as it does for horror. Going back specifically to the making of the movie The Shining, were there any techniques that you know of that Stanley Kubrick used to hide the set from Danny Lloyd that you're aware of? I don't know if you have found this in your research at all or anything. And sixth question, were, were there any techniques Stanley Kubrick during the making of The Shining to hide the set from Danny Lloyd that you're aware of? Um, I mean, the techniques were uh, just distraction. I mean, you know, like the, a film set is a place with a lot of people. Uh, there's lots of things going on. And uh, Danny was just, you know, he was being just trained to, to give the best of himself in those takes. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Leon Vitali, who was uh, the assistant of Kubrick that I mentioned, uh, did a terrific job in like... Uh, prepping uh, Danny for the takes and it seems from production uh, stills from the film that Danny was being you know everybody was very kind with Danny it would seem there's there is a famous still production still of um, the Steadicam operator uh, Garrett Brown uh, who's holding Danny on the rig of his Steadicam camera as if it were a swing it's a very very adorable picture um, that uh, you know, in general, it's 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 very striking that Danny is smiling and having a a great time in practically every production still of him in on the shoot, whereas Shelley Duvall is almost systematically sort of sullen, grim, uh, exhausted. So uh, uh, I think that, uh, that that there was there was really no need for uh, hiding anything from Danny. It was just a matter of distracting him, you know, whenever uh, he needed to be distracted, uh, entertained if you will, and then uh, the ability of Danny Lloyd to be focused whenever he needed to be. Uh, and as you probably saw in the film, he does that beautifully. It's really interesting to hear about those film techniques that Stanley Kubrick used during The Shining. You know, when you're watching a film, you're not really aware of the behind-the-scenes nature of it. You just see what they want you to see. The next question we have is, did Kubrick receive any criticism for the film in regards to employing a child actor to star in this type of film? Seven, did Kubrick receive any criticism for the film in regards to employing a child actor to star in a horror film? Well, I mean, there is a, a, a long history of, of uh, children actors in horror films, as I mentioned. There is the Village of the Damned from the, in the 60s, and then, of course, there is The uh, Exorcist in which a, uh, a pubescent a young Linda Blair is, uh, uh, you know, she is doing things that are way off the charts. Uh, uh, masturbating with a crucifix and, uh, you know, saying all these curse words. And, uh, uh, I mean, you name it. And that, that, that film, I think, should receive much more heat uh, for what it does in employing and exploiting uh, a child actress than, uh, than Kubrick would ever receive for... Uh, for The Shining. Of course, as you know, uh, Kubrick did Lolita. He adapted Lolita in uh, 1960. 
1962, I think, 1962. And, and that's a film about a, a, the topic of, of, of pedophilia and uh, the obsession of, a, of an older man with a, with a very young girl. Uh, and that was scandalous. Evidently, that that film, you know, at the time, uh, raised a lot of eyebrows, and a lot of people were upset by the film, the much as the, a lot of the people were upset by the the novel by Nabokov, on which it is based. I think that The Shining, by comparison, is very mild. Uh, so, uh, I don't think I don't think that was the center of attention when the film was released. I think there were lots of other aspects of the film that were criticized. The lack of faithfulness to the novel by Stephen King, the, the author of the novel, for instance, and, and of course the fans of the novel, uh, the uh, histrionic acting of Jack Nicholson. I mean, there were lots of aspects that were that came under fire. The fact that the film was cold, the fact that the film was boring for some. Uh, I, I don't have a, a strong recollection of having seen a, uh, you know, the, a criticism of the film for that. And nowadays, I think that the film should come uh, under fire for the uh, the treatment and abuse of Shelley Duvall. Evidently, that's that's a huge problem, I think. And um, another aspect, and uh, Vivian Kubrick, the the daughter of Stanley Kubrick, talks about this candidly. Uh, for instance, you know, we live in an age where environmental matters are very important. But uh, 40 years ago, when they were making The Shining, and they literally covered the whole set in salt like hundreds and hundreds of tons of salt to, to create that snow uh, effect. Well, that is obviously environmentally very unfriendly. And, uh, you know, nowadays, how would you, how would you do it? Uh, you know, because what were the alternatives? A styrofoam would probably be equally, <laughs> equally horrible for the environment, probably even more un un unfriendly. And CGI, well, CGI never looks very good. So what do you do? Um, that's that's the the problem you want to create art you you have to make certain sacrifices and sometimes you make other people make those sacrifices but again i don't think that danny lloyd had made a, a specific sacrifice uh, on the set of the shining and our last question is more of like a fun question i guess but it is do you believe that danny lloyd's role in the shining is why the film has become one of the most iconic horror films of all time do you think that him partaking in the movie as such a young boy drew the audience closer to the movie because it created a bigger fear factor because there was a child in the film and last question do you believe danny lloyd's role in the shining is why the film has become one of the most iconic horror films of all time uh, everything about the shining contributes to making it an iconic film. The cinematography, the set, of course, uh, the music, the acting of all the actors, everybody, from, from Jack Nicholson in his over, you know, overhyped uh, crazy mode to the very smooth evil of uh, Joe Turkle as uh, the bartender, Lloyd. So Danny Lloyd is exceptional. He's exceptional. He was cast among thousands of uh, other young American boys and he was picked singled out and uh, his performance is practically flawless uh, it's one of the most impressive performances by a child in a horror film ever I'm thinking of a film that came out very at very much at the same time which was The Brood by uh, David Cronenberg which is ruined by the, uh, the very mediocre acting of the children it is very very difficult to get a child to act on that level uh, who is not a trained actor 
and very few children are trained actors. Some of, some of them are, but then you can sort of sense it. You know, somehow the, the, the professional reflexes come to the fore and are equally problematic in different ways. So Danny is one of the anchors, one of our emotional anchors in the film. Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, that is to say uh, Wendy and uh, Mr. Halloran, and Danny, they are the community of, of people that, that we can relate to, that we can feel uh, a bond with. And um, in that sense, it's a very important aspect of the film, not only as it being iconic, but as being a, a film that deeply affects us and to which we can relate. So yeah, I guess that's it. And I hope you can use uh, some of the stuff I said. Uh, good luck to you, ladies. Bye-bye. We want to thank Jeremy for taking the time to give these responses to our audience today because even though you might not have even ever thought of it before, child actors in horror movies are such a big part of why horror movies do so well in their industry. They bring a whole new element to the film that makes viewers really feel more scared in my opinion because when I'm watching a horror movie if I see a kid I think to myself imagine being that kid right now so terrified so scared not sure what to do and not only in the film am I thinking that but because I'm pretty educated in film and me and Lucy love analyzing stuff like we said we think about their real lives like these people are real people having to film these scary scenes do they know what's going on like this is such a worthy conversation because mental health is such a big aspect of everyday life in society that if you don't talk about it nothing will ever change and i think that that stigma needs to be broken a little bit because if child actors are suffering then maybe that's something that needs to be put on pause for a little bit. Parents need to be aware that there are consequences for the decisions they make for their children at such a young age, no matter how much success it will bring them. Think about it. We always talk about the effect that violent video games have on children. Well, starring in a horror movie is a violent video game to the max. There's all these studies from psychologists that warn about you know, this form of entertainment, even watching a scary movie, that it can lead to intense adrenaline rushes that can affect you in the long term. If kids are starring in this movie, if they're putting their lives in danger like Linda Blair did on that harness, how is that going to affect them as they grow up? I think this is a discussion that we should be having more often. Horror movies have become increasingly gory and realistic. To have a young child placed at the center of it all can't you see how that would affect them as they grow up? So we want to thank you guys one more time for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. And we hope you stay tuned in to Life Beyond the Screen because there's going to be so many different elements of all movie genres, all aspects of film. And we can't wait for you guys to hear more. So thank you so much. Thanks, guys.